So I just want to tell y'all today, we've got an incredibly difficult passage. And uh, it's one of the most debated passages in Scripture and, and, and even in Romans. And uh, it's a very heavy passage. And so I just want to ask something of you before we even start. I want you to ask God, God, could you use a difficult and technical passage to transform my life? Would you just, would you just pray that if you're willing? Not, not out loud, but just to God right now. And just ask God to speak to you. So we are all about teaching and healing at Grace. And sometimes we hit passages that are incredibly difficult to read and to understand and even to apply to our lives. But as we go through the scriptures week after week, God exposes things and uses things to speak into our life. And so I want to bring you up to speed. If you're new to grace or if you've missed a few weeks, we are in the book of Romans in a series called Finding Freedom. And in chapters one and two, and now we're jumping into three today. In chapters one and two, and now into three, here's the big idea. Paul is saying, hey, listen, whether you've had access to the scriptures or to church or to spiritual things or not, and you're a person on an island who hasn't ever heard anything, either way, all are found wanting because of sin. That all are in need of a savior, that everyone needs Jesus that everyone needs to believe the gospel, that he died on a cross, rose from the dead, and then now he exists and reigns and is ruling. And so it doesn't matter who you are, where you've come from, whatever your story or scenario or situation, we all need Jesus. But he's not just saying that. He's also making the case that God is right and just and fair to punish sin to pour out his wrath. Why? Because we have all, on some form or fashion, rejected God, that we're all found wanting. And so last week, Paul specifically, he pictures this idea for the Jews, and he says, hey, listen, the law that you have, that you grew up with, that you know well, and the circumcision that has happened in your life that has said that you are, are called out to be the people of God, listen, those things won't save you. They're not going to change your life in that way. Only, it's only by faith in God and specifically in Jesus. And so listen, if you're clinging to those things to save you, it's of no benefit. And so Paul now in chapter three, which is where we're headed today, he kind of takes a detour from the overall argument. And what he does is, is he says, hey, I'm making all these claims and you probably have some rebuttals. You probably have some response. You probably have things to say or questions that you have or concerns that you, it's like in marketing, you know, if you're about to put something out on, on social media, you have to be prepared, right? For rebuttals and responses and everything. Paul's doing that here. And it seems almost strange how he just throws it in the first eight verses. And then in verses 9 to 20, which is where we're going to end today, he goes back to the big idea that all are found wanting and that God is right and just to punish son. So that's where we're headed. So let's jump in. This is chapter 3, verse 1. Here's the, the idea of a rebuttal. It's almost like he's talking to an imaginary person. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision, they would say to Paul. And Paul says, much in every way to begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. So I just want to stop there. So just think for a second. 
in your imagination that a Jew is countering Paul. And he's saying, hey, if you're saying that circumcision doesn't matter and the law doesn't matter, we're the people of God. Like, what, what, what benefit do we have? Like, if it doesn't save us, what, what benefit? And he says, much in every way to begin with the Jews. So who's the Jews? Let's just go there for a second if you haven't been a part of church. In chapter 12 of Genesis, which is the first book in the Bible, God makes a covenant with a man named Abraham. And all of the descendants of Abraham come the people of God. And so it's Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob becomes Israel, and which are the Israelites. Okay? So those are the Jews, the people of God. The promises were given to them. The law was given to them. So many other things. He says the Jews were, man, they, much in every way to begin with, verse 2, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God, the scriptures of God, the Old Testament. So they were entrusted with this so that they would hand it off from children to children to children to their grand, great, great grandkids. That's the picture. So you, you had this huge benefit. What are you talking about? And then he says, verse 3. But what if some were unfaithful? So speaking to Paul again. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? And he says, by no means. Like, absolutely not, but let's, let's, let's jump into that for a second. What if, what, what is he saying? What if some were unfaithful? We see throughout the Old Testament that Jews did not hand off the Scriptures over and over and over again. What we see over and over again is a people who walk away from God, who rebel, who sin who choose idolatry instead of the true and living God. We see it over and over. And it's part of the debate here, and there's so much debate around it, we're not going to get into all of it. Part of the debate is, what does some mean? Because it seems like there's so many in the Old Testament. Does he really mean some by the majority of the Jews? Because that's what it seems like. It seems like there's a remnant and that there's all these people who walk away from God. So, so there, this is a huge question for Paul. Like God made a covenant. He made a promise with his people. And what about all these unfaithful Jews? Does their faithlessness nullify or, or make void the faithfulness of God? That's a real question. Like what do we say about God if his people aren't following him? And he's going to answer that in a second, but I want to bring it home for us. I did a little quick survey, a little, little research. 2017, Orlando and the surrounding area, they're known for certain things. And Orlando is in the top 10 unchurched cities in America. In Orlando, we're uh, the, the, in the surrounding areas in the top 10 de-churched city of all of America. And if you don't know what de-churched means, it's people who are going to church and then they walked away from church. 2019, even closer survey. Orlando, surrounding area, top 50 post-Christian city in America, walking away from Christianity. Those are big numbers. And you know what? I showed up three, I don't know, three and a half years ago. And you know what I saw? You know what I felt and, and, and saw so many people feel? Is the brokenness that they have seen throughout the church. We live, not only are we top 10 unchurched, but we're top 10 de-churched. Part of that reasoning is, and I've seen it and felt it, is people who have gone to churches who had leaders who failed, who had leaders who sinned, or who had leaders that dropped the ball or whatever, or maybe they had a pastor that did it. 
And so instead of me giving all these illustrations in my life, guess what? Many of you in here are a part of that illustration. You feel it. You've seen a leader fail and what happens? You start to question, does this nullify who God is and his faithfulness and his goodness? And and now I'm, I'm so disillusioned, I'm literally backtracking. And see, here's the interesting thing. For those of you that have been a part of this story or this is your story and you're here today, maybe back for the first time. We had several in the last hour that came up to me and talked to me about it. But I, I, just, wanna, I just wanna sit here for a second. If you're in that space, guess what? It doesn't have to look like you've left the faith. That would be the easy sign. You would go, okay, I was walking with God and now I'm not. Those are the easy ones, but guess what? In this situation, and we see all throughout the scriptures, it's multiple layers. It's not just, have I left the faith, but am I so disillusioned that now I'm disengaging from my faith and I'm disengaging from church and I'm disengaging from the community of God. I mean, I'm disengaging from my reading of the Bible. I'm disengaging from all these things in my life. Think of it like this. It's like a marriage, okay? Let's, let's talk about concentric circles, Okay? And in the closest innermost circle is intimacy. You are connected as a husband and a wife, mind, body, soul, their life is together. As you start to go out into the circles, there's less engagement and even more less engagement until you get to one of the last rings and it's, it's this. It's, we're still together, but we just haven't signed the papers. We haven't divorced yet. So I'm just asking you, Don't just assume that though you felt disillusioned for a moment, that that all of a sudden everything's good. No, no, no. How are you doing with God? There's multiple layers in this conversation. The hurt, the pain, the sorrow, all of the stuff that you saw and felt and left. Now you're here and you're going, I'm I'm reengaged. Are you though? Are you? Where are you at in the circle? Are Are you intimate with God? Has your times with him been good? When you, when you come to church, do you find joy and peace and hope again? Or are you going, man, I, I'm still in the trajectory. So this is the question. Is your trajectory of, in disengaging or are you re-engaging with Jesus in your time and in the church and as a part of the people of God? Let me say it a different way. You can have my time, but not my money. You can have my money, but not my obedience. It makes me think, there was a couple that I knew, super strong family, loved Jesus. The husband felt super clear that he was called missions, international missions, like to go to reach people for Jesus. And that he was suited for it. His wife and family were suited for it. Like they were the ideal couple to do this kind of thing. And he just felt like God was saying again and again, hey, I'm calling you this, I'm calling this. He goes to his wife and says, hey, what do you think? She says, absolutely not. We're not going. Like I'm drawing a line. We're never leaving here. Our grandkids are going to be here. I don't care if God's calling us. We're not going. It's the picture here. Like, I'm willing to give you, I, I can do the nine to five, I can show up to church, I can serve, I can give, I can, I can do all the stuff, but you can't have my heart. I'm not going to obey you. I'm disengaged. I've been too hurt. I've been too burned. I've been too whatever. I can do all the stuff so everybody thinks I'm good, but deep inside, you and me, God, we're not okay. I'm not going. I'm not willing to say whatever you want me to do and wherever you want me to go, I'll go. I'm out. I'll play the game. 
Where are you at? Let me say it a different way. Have you allowed the faithlessness of a person or persons to nullify your faith in God? And how has that led to disengagement in your relationship with God? You need to sit there. And this isn't just going to be a morning, hey, I showed up and everything changed all of a sudden. No, no. This is something you need to sit with, pray through, think about, bring community into. Some of you maybe in this room are hurting really bad and you didn't realize how bad. I had somebody come up to me and just unload and said, we need to meet later. And I was like, absolutely. So let God work in your life. Let this passage that you're like the Jews and you're questioning, is God faithful when I've seen so much unfaithfulness? And even in my own life. Verse 13, I mean, verse three. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means, Paul says. So here's his, his, his response. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. Charles Spurgeon is super helpful here. I'm going to read it to you. If God says one thing and every man or woman in the world says another, God is true and all men and women are false. God speaks the truth and cannot lie. God cannot change his word like himself is immutable. We are to believe God's truth. If nobody else believes it, the general consensus of opinion is nothing to a Christian. He believes God's word and he thinks more of that than the universal opinion of men. There's so much we could say and unpack here, but this is sure, surely it's a word for us today. There's so many ideologies and thoughts that are popular, that are considered to be right and true, and they're contrary to the word of God. That's why we preach the scriptures week after week after week, because we can hear this bombarded. It's in the videos, it's on YouTube, it's on social media, it's in our classrooms, it's in all kinds of things, right? It's inundated in our culture, in our lives and everything. And we have to go, hey, if everybody's saying it, drinking it, smoking it, sleeping it, are we supposed to believe it? And the answer is no. If everyone's a liar, if everyone is, is, is false, God is true. God is true. You know, I was watching Raiders of the Lost Ark recently. Any, any Raiders of the Lost Ark fans? Dude, it was like 90 people showed, like raised their hand. Nobody? Okay, okay, there we go. I thought so, I thought so. I mean, it's all right, it's good. I mean, you know. Anyways, Harrison Ford, he's a professor, okay? He's in his classroom, he's teaching. He makes a really interesting statement. I was watching it last week, so this is what popped up in my head. He, he says, in this class, we're all about facts. I, I, I do like his voice, like it's, it's a pretty sweet voice. I can't do it, but it's, it's fantastic. So he's like, we're all about facts, that's what we teach in here is facts. And he goes, if you want the truth, you go over to that philosophy class. I thought that was a really interesting statement. Here's the reality. We want both. We want facts and we want the truth and they should go back and forth between one another. We want the truth and we want facts. We want what's real and true and can bring about life change inward to the outward. Not just some kind of superficial, what everybody believes, it's popular. No, 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 we want the truth. That's what we want. 
That's what we long for. And so I ask you, what is true, what is biblical, and what is loving? And I have to say this, what's biblical is loving, and it is true. And that's what Paul's saying. Verse 5, but if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Here's another counter argument. That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? And then Paul kind of diverts because he feels bad even saying this. He said, I I speak in human terms. I speak in a human way. Verse 6, by no means. For then how could God judge the world? What what is Paul talking about? He says, if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, then why does God send his wrath on us? So this is a Jew supposedly speaking, okay? Let me give you another scenario. This is one maybe you're familiar of, whether you are in church or not. Jesus had 12 disciples. One of them betrayed him. Who was it? So weak. (laughs) I'm just just kidding. No, no, it was Judas. It was good. Most of you got it. It was Judas. What's the deal with Judas? He betrayed Jesus, led him, delivered him literally to the cross. Okay, that's the, the steps to get there. What if Judas came and said, hey, What's the deal, Paul? Like, if I hadn't delivered Jesus, he would have never been crucified and he he wouldn't have rose from the dead and all of you would still be found wanting. You wouldn't have any hope. So listen, Paul, I did Jesus a solid, right? I was hooking him up. I was helping him out. Like, what, what are you talking about? Why would God send his wrath on me when I actually furthered the gospel? Are you joking? That's the line of argument. That's the picture here. Like, why, why would we be punished if you, verse 7, but if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory? Why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. Here's the reason why. It's because the ends doesn't justify the means. Motive matters. Here's the reality, and Paul's been saying it week after week after week. Listen, even if you were part of bringing glory to God and furthering the gospel, your motive was completely wrong. You had no good intent in this. And so you're just, your condemnation is just. God is just to send out his wrath on you. He's just to punish sin because your intention was not to save people. Your intention was to crucify the Messiah. You missed it. And you missed it. You missed it big. Let's keep going. Verse 9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? And he says, nope. Nope. Just because you had access and privilege to spiritual things, just because you grew up where you did, does not mean that you're exempt from the wrath of God. He says, no, not at all. For we have already charged that all in chapters one and in chapters two, both Jews and Greeks are under sin. They are slaves to sin. Romans chapter six through eight. We're gonna see that more and more. Verse 10, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. This is where he, he, he really starts to lay it out. As another pastor I heard say, he goes to the last 10%. You know how when you're in an argument and you're trying to resolve, you get the last 10% that you want to do or you don't do. And sometimes you just call and say, hey, we're good. We're not going to do the last 10%. Paul's going to the last 10. He's going all the way. He's saying, I want to make it clear that everyone 
is found wanting. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. That's really, we're going to come back to that. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Really? Strong statement. Verse 13, their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of ass is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. It's a strong indictment. He's coming back to this idea that we're all fallen and broken. Tim Keller, I think, summarizes this well in a list. And he gives seven identifiers of how sin has affected us. How sin affects sinners. Let's look at it. Number one, it affects our legal standing with God. Number two, it affects our minds. Number three, sin affects our motives. Number four, sin affects our wills. Number five, our tongues. Number six, our relationships. And last, number seven, our relationships with God. Paul is saying your entire life, inward and outward, is touched and broken by sin. Strong. It's a strong indictment. But I want to go back to two, two things in these verses. Verse 11, no one understands, no one seeks for God. Is that really, Paul? You serious? No one seeks for God? I feel like, you know, I've heard of stories, maybe not my own, but people who are in other countries and they're like seeking for a higher power or they, they see a storm and they're like, something's bigger than me, I'm, I'm, I'm seeking after God. All of these ideas, right? Tim Keller, again, is super helpful. Listen to this. Someone might have an intellectual interest in the possibility of God or a philosophical conviction that there is a God. But that's not a real passion to meet with God. In fact, both can be a way, listen to this, a way of avoiding meeting the real God. If we can keep him in the realm of intellectual argument or philosophical construct, we can keep ourselves from having to deal with the objective reality of the true God. Again, the means and the motive matters. I think Paul is narrowing in here and he's saying, hey, listen, no one in their own righteousness and goodness seeks the one true God. What they end up doing is they end up constructing and creating false gods in their search. And they're saying, hey, I wonder if this could be it. And they, and they craft a God and they worship it, they follow it, and they, they pursue it. So no one seeks for God. But then verse 12, all have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. No one does good, really? No one? What do you mean? Again, motive matters. I, I can think of my neighbor in Georgia, one of the sweetest, kindest, most giving persons. And I can't see her heart. I can't see the motivations of why she does those things. But Paul is saying, the scriptures say over and over, that oftentimes we do things. And, and, and you know how I can relate? Because I do it too. 
Sometimes I do things that are good because I want to be seen as good. Or really, the, really for me, you know what it is? I want to feel good. I want to feel like I'm a good person. I want to feel like, man, what I'm doing matters. I want to feel like I'm an okay person. Like maybe me and God can be good today because I've done enough good stuff. Because I've said the right thing. I've been kind to my kids. I had a good week. And so I feel good about myself. And Paul is saying, no, 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 no. No one does good apart from Christ. It's only his righteousness and his goodness and his graciousness. I think of 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. So whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, we do all for his glory. No one does that for the glory of God. That's what he's saying. There has to be a relationship. There's an ultimate goodness that bleeds into all the other goodness in the world. And it's through Christ and it's in him. That's where goodness comes from. So he's saying all of us are found wanting. Verse 19, he's, he's bringing it home. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. Speaking of Jews right there. So that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Paul is saying, hey, listen, it doesn't matter if you had access or no access, whether you have some kind of whatever your upbringing is, all are found wanting and in need of Jesus. So I want to take a a few moments. I'm going to pray with you. And I'm going to ask you to pray with me as well. And so as the band comes up, um, I'm going to give you, I'm going to pray with you and I'm going to give you time to pray as well. But we're going to ask God to move and work in your life. And so let's pray. Father, we, we just come before you and recognize that you're here. God, I just want to lift up the people in this room who are disillusioned right now, who through a, a situation or a story or a church or a leader or a person or a family member, God, right now they are running from you and they don't even realize it, but they're beginning to realize it today. That they, maybe they haven't walked away altogether, but they are disengaging and they're in that trajectory. God, if, if they're in this room, I just wanna give you a moment to speak to God and confess that to God and ask for hope and life again and that he would heal you and change you and renew you. God, I just ask for your gracious, patient hand over these individuals, God, that they would find their hearts beating again for you. God, that you would restore them and renew them and heal this this brokenness that they've seen and been a part of and maybe even observed like close quarters. God, would you bring healing and comfort? God, would they find joy again as they come back and and are a part of the people of God as they read your scriptures? Would you open it up again? Would Would you bring them to life, God? Would you bring about healing? God, I ask and I pray for the people in the room who who recognize that, man, whether they're a Christian or not, that they've been trying to use their goodness to be worthy before you and to use their goodness, whether it's an act or a thought or a deed or whatever it is that they're trying to use that to say, I feel good about myself. God, would you, would you speak to them? Would you show them that it's not their goodness, but it's the the righteousness of Christ that sets them free? And so God, I just wanna give them a moment to pray and to confess that they've been clinging to themselves instead of you.
God, over these people, and I include myself, God, would you just extend freedom? Would you free us from this performance cycle, from this looking inward instead of looking to the alien righteousness in Christ? That, God, would we believe that your son is more than enough, enough to cover our sins and, our, and even our, our good deeds that we're trying to cling to his righteousness? God, cleanse us, purify us, and grow us as we find freedom in you. We love you and praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.